A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Cats, how are you doing? Good to see you. I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We're starting our films by asking contributors just to introduce themselves and to give us a sense of their work. So would you mind doing that? Okay. Uh, my name is Richard Katz. I'm an actor um, and uh, uh, um, I've been doing that for maybe 30 years and I write a bit too. Uh, and on the whole, my work as an actor has kind of split into two halves, one of which is what you might call, you know, um, well, plays that already exist, you know, Shakespeare on the whole, but plays that have a, that, that know what they are before you get in the rehearsal room. And the other half of my life has been with companies who make their own work, who sort of we complicity, Tom and Idiot, Improbable, and we would come to a rehearsal room with a bunch of ideas, sometimes not much more than a single line on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. and the show develops out of that. And that might take six weeks or a month or sometimes two years, but we're, we're making our own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but those two things have kind of existed in parallel to each other. Um, over the, as I say, over the past sort of 30 years or so, yeah. And you said also uh, writing? Yes. Yeah, so I, 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 I'm writing a couple of things at the moment. One is a, a movie, uh, which is a comedy about Palestine. <laughs> and I know, I know. The other thing's even worse, I'm, now I'm saying it. And the other thing is I'm trying to get, I, I'm, I kind of, you can tell from the camp, from the, the I'm quite brown uh, and I'm, I have a, a, a Jewish backstory but also Persian but many years ago so I get asked to play a variety of things so I'm just trying to write something about who is okay to play what mm-hmm. and at one extreme you've got blacking up which is obviously off you know for you know it's quite quite rightly um not done anymore but you have at the other end of things you have a more fuzzy area so you know you might go and see Fiddler on the Roof, for instance, and there might not be any Jewish people in it, and that's fine because well, you want people in Fiddler on the Roof to be able to sing. That's probably a higher requirement than whether they're Jewish or not. But so I'm just trying to write something about that. That that's that's where that is at the moment. Those two mm-hmm. things, but yeah, so, uh, but they're but, but they're comedies essentially. I'm trying to um, pull the pants down of things, you know, and and just get to the bottom of them without offending anyone, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> putting the pants down and getting to the bottom of things without offending people. Um, oh, that is yeah. a hell of a visual image. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, go on, sorry. No, it's just because, as I say, uh, uh, before, I'm, you know, essentially I'm a comedian who became an actor. And so what comedy allows you to do is it allows you to poke fun at things. I became really obsessed by Mel Brooks and that he wrote the producers, you know, in the early 60s. It's less than 20 years after the end of the... Um, after the end of the war, and he's making jokes about the Nazis. Mm. And I just thought it was so bold and so outrageous. Mm. And um, that he felt that he was okay to do that and pull the pants down of it, of, of this scary, horrible movement. Uh, and so that's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to find a way of get use comedy to ask serious questions. Mm. Uh, and because, because you know, there's hypocrisy in everything. And and so that, as a comedian, there's that's just... A beautiful playground really if you can avoid offending people that's the trick i think because you don't want to punch down it's really easy to punch down the easiest thing in the world so uh, yeah that's where i am with my writing essentially great thank you um so we'll unpack all of that if that's all right um yeah. i guess i'm interested in the narrative you've given us of an actor who moves between devised work and working with a pre-established play text particularly when you're also saying that 
you are now the the creator of pre-established playtexts or t- or yeah. text scripts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you mind telling us a bit about what it's like to work within those two different approaches to performance? Well, the funny thing, you know, when you're in a, when you're in, I don't know. Um, if you went to do a production of Much Ado, normally on day one, you know, you'd get shown a bunch of stuff that already exists. Three hours, four hours of words. There might be a set. They might say, well, we're going to set this in, um, you know, modern day Russia. And we, this is what the castle's going to look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's great because it, it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about. Uh, but... It's also, there's a load of doors that have already been closed in, in a creative sense because you don't have to worry about. Whereas uh, in the device world, what happens on the whole is that you might have one idea, one sketchy idea or one big idea that you're going to base everything around. It might be, I don't know, an, ad- an adaptation of a book, um, but it might just be uh, a feeling. You know, I want to get underneath the uh, consciousness or whatever it is big ideas and but there are no doors that are are closed to you they're all open and sometimes that can be overwhelming because well you might have four weeks or five weeks or or whatever it is and somehow those two worlds it's really interesting because in a you know in in, if, if you're doing as I say much ado the first couple of weeks of rehearsal, you don't really have to worry about what are we going to do today. There's a whole load of stuff you need to get on top of, blocking or uh, you know, what's our approach to the verse going to be? What's the difference between the verse and the prose and what's it trying to do? And there's just stuff to do immediately. Mm-hmm. And in, in, the, in a devised world, there's you never really know what you're doing because even the companies like I've done maybe 10 shows with Complicity over the years and I promise you on day one, everyone looks around and goes, well, what the hell did we do last time? Can anyone remember what we did last time? How do we do this? No one knows. And of course, you've got unbelievably smart people in the room, uh, you know, like Simon McBurney, who has some really good ideas. So at the very least, someone goes, let's head in that direction. You go, okay, fine. So that's just the first day taken care of. And then maybe the day after that. And then it's amazingly quick, the sort of breakdown into, you know, if you're doing, let's say, um, uh, the first show I did with them was called Mnemonic and it was about memory. So we, we just spent the first few weeks talking about memory and things. So gradually you're building a, a reservoir of ideas or um, just some images or some things that people have read or um, things that they want to talk about. And it's a bit like, um, I always think uh, devising is like the tube map. The analogy for me is, is the tube map. So on day one, you might have the Bakerloo line, which is memory. And then suddenly someone will go, well, isn't memory connected to, um, I don't know, the past? So then you have another, then you have the Piccadilly line, which crosses the Bakerloo line, which is the past. And then you go, well, actually, branching off the past is all of our individual pasts. So I was in that show particularly because Simon wanted uh, actors of the Jewish heritage. So suddenly you're opening up this enormous past. Mm. 5,000 years have passed. Mm. And on that tube line, there are a hundred different places to get off. And so already within five minutes, I've got a tube map that now has a hundred stops to visit if I want to. And it's just like that. It's just about building this world that the group of you in the room can have as a, a inspiration to, because at the end of the day, the question that Simon will always ask is what are we looking at 
what the, what's the audience looking at? What are the words? What are we doing? And you're trying to make your tube map get up on its feet, have a life, have stories, have people. Um, and in Much Ado, Shakespeare's given you all of those things already. That's not to say you don't have to do some of those things. Your Much Ado is set in, I don't know, Tsarist Russia. Well, then you can go off and if you want to do a bunch of research about Tsarist Russia, if you want to, you know. And so... I think the early parts of those two rehearsal rooms are very, very different. And then gradually as you're building material in the devised world, it starts to mimic the other world quite carefully, quite closely rather, because, well, you have words, you have scenes and you have things that become stories. Mm. Yeah, if that, if that will make sense. That was a mm. rambly answer. No, it's great. Um, do, do they come together exactly? So um, do they, will a device show have a looser relationship with things like text or? Totally, totally, because you're changing it all the time because it's yours. So, you know, if I came in tomorrow and said, I'm not sure about the, uh, the scene in the chapel in Much Ado, I don't think it works. Let's get rid of it. You know, everyone will go, no, that's nonsense. It's brilliant. It's the best scene in the thing or whatever. <laughs> Whereas with device work, you never really know, even when you're doing it. We played mnemonic for two years. In fact, it had a life after I left it. So the show maybe existed for several years after that. And I promise you, every single day when you come in to do the show, you're coming in in the middle of the afternoon because someone will say, that scene doesn't work. Let's change it. And you can, because it's yours. So you can under, you can lift up the hood of the car, have a look in the thing and, 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 and tinker with it. Mm. Because it's you, you have a very, very big ownership on the text, the characters are kind of versions of you because, as I say, Simon particularly wanted a Jewish actor of a Jewish heritage. So I had bits in that story that were me. They were just versions of me. So I could go, well, that scene's in there because of this. And someone would go, yeah, but that's as, that's as maybe, but it's not really working. So we, you know. So, so yes, that, that, the text changes really all the time in devised, uh, in, in, in my experience anyway, in the devised world. I think it's healthy as well mm. uh, because you want it you want it to be the best it can be yeah. and it's very rare that you've made something that's perfect even something that people really love we're changing that all the time and it's harder in a in a in a play that already exists because it's been road tested so many times so there's there's on the whole you know you always cut the same scenes that you always cut because people have learned over a period of time well we don't have to do the four hour version of hamlet because well, no one ever does because this bit and that bit and this bit doesn't, you have to sort of, you know, tailor it to your particular needs. Yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, in the device world, that, that changes all the time because your particular needs might change as the show develops. You mm -hmm. think it's a show about memory. No, it's a show about the past or, mm -hmm. mind you, that's, that's the same thing. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? So gradually as the show changes and develops, you realise that the best material from earlier on is now superfluous mm -hmm. because you're telling that bit of the story in a, in a a more elegant way or a faster way or a funnier way or a million other ways you know it's really interesting that we associate people like Shakespeare with one of those theatrical traditions because in a way he comes out of a devised theatre kind of background whenever you see a play within a play in Shakespeare like in Hamlet or Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream all of those texts are totally negotiable and constantly being changed and swapped to suit the show that they want to put on at that particular moment and again when That's you see um, when a play exists in two different versions, there's always lots of differences between them. And what we see from the period is that the texts are super fluid and negotiable. And you can just go, 
that scene isn't working, let's just get rid of it or rewrite it. Um, yeah. But that's not how we treat him now. Yeah, or when, you know, when they did, um, uh, when Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet, I think they started at a really strange moment. And yeah, so, to be or not to be. Yeah, and so you suddenly go, oh my God, yeah, that's so cool. Because it's like, um, it's like a modular, it's a bit like, um, you know, a bunch of scenes. There's only a bunch of scenes in the order we do it because it's the order we do it. Uh, and um, it's so exciting when, when, when you, people are happy to innovate with, mm. with, with um, especially with texts like that, because they mm. are illuminating new things all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and so um, absolutely, I, I think, and actually when Simon or the devised world come into, in fact, I'm, I'm, I've done a couple of Shakespeare's with Simon and actually having got the muscle of being able to tinker with things, everything becomes a bit more up for grabs, actually. Mm. I think there's a little less reverence uh, for things in a good way, you know, because um, uh, uh, we want to tell the story in the best way we can, these people in this room right now, for those people who are coming to this theatre, mm. you know, and that's going to change depending on where you are, you know, and, um, you, you know, when you're at the, um, the Globe or the RSC or those kinds of places, there's just less... I think there's just less time to pick things apart in the way uh, because they're, they're, they're operating as part of a season. So you've maybe got six weeks. It's very difficult to, to really go crazy in six weeks because I know half of your actors are in the other show as well. So you're constantly, so there's just less time, I think, for those kind of bold, innovative um, things. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know. That's fascinating. Um, you were sort of gesturing there to kind of working between the two forms and having people like Simon working with Shakespeare. Do you have a sense of what it mean, has meant for you as a, as a performer to move between the two? And does it give you a sense of devising whilst doing Shakespeare or doing something Shakespeare-y whilst totally, devising? Totally. I think I've just got my, in, in my head, and this is not to say that I am a director, but I think that what the devised world fosters is that there's, there's not an, one director and nine actors yeah. everyone has the ability to stand up and go i don't think we should be doing this i think we should be doing that and this is how we're going to do it and you, you everyone has the ability to stop the room yeah. stop the room and say well hang on why are we doing this bit like this let's come at it from around there and i just bring that now <laughs> into every rehearsal that i'm in now that can be very annoying i think for people because well i don't know because really time is always of the essence so actually having um, knowing when to be quiet is a real skill. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think I have got better at that over the years because, because if you're used to, you know, if, if you've got the um, permission to stand up and say, I don't think so, that's really great. But even in the devised world, let's say there's 20 of you in the room, including the stage management team who are also ha um, uh, have permission to stand up and speak. And there's always a sound person in the room. There's always a... Uh, um, a video person in the room, et cetera, et cetera. So there might be 20 people in the room. So let's say 20 smart people all have one really clever thing to say. Mm. That's a day of your life mm. if, if you're not careful. And so a lot of the time it's, it's just about also being as good at knowing, I don't think my input here is necessary, you know? So it's a bit like having a really good squad. Sometimes I'm going to absolutely listen to Andy because he's the one who's driving this bit. And then when Andy loses a bit of momentum, Richard's going to take over. When Richard stops momentum, Paul's going to take over. 
and in a, in a more um, traditional world, you just have to pick your moments. I think it's not just about standing up every ten minutes going, "I think I know how to do this bit," because you know, well, no, because you, you don't most of the time. But it, it is useful when things are getting sticky, um, because you just go, oh, "You know what? I've got an instinct. We could maybe try something different." You know? Yeah. Thank you. Um, and does the double background of devising and comedy has that? Do you think dictated the kinds of roles that you? play in particular show probably i mean probably i mean I, I i i i love being in comedies so much there's nothing if i could just do one thing for the rest of my life it would be to make people laugh there's nothing that makes me happier it's all i think about i mean it really is all i think about and my kids hate it my <laughs> family hate it because every everything i do is just about is there a joke in here you know and so I somehow have ended up, you know, that that's the kind of the roles I, I tend to play. But actually, over, you know, over the years, I, I've probably done not quite as much um, non-comic roles. But I, I think that is the truth of the matter. I, I would tend to be. But also because, as I said before, about the writing is that comedy is great for hypocrisy. So when you do end up playing a character that you think, like I, I played Lord Capulet at um for the RSC and I just thought this guy's he, he there's hypocrisy somewhere in there that's really good to be exposed and comedy can be quite good for that you can say one thing but do another thing or, or come at things from a an angle where you're, you're allowing an audience to it's always crucial not to sort of underline it too much and because you want the audience to do a bit of work for you but um for themselves rather but but there's there's absolutely a sense, I think, with, with with having a comic eye on things that you are able to to get underneath things a little bit, um, and um, yeah, uh, and also, you know, the, the the trouble is with most of the last. I'm just thinking on the top of my head, but most of the shows I've done in the last few years have been at the Globe. Now, as a comic actor, that's a very dangerous place because essentially, if you want it, there's there's jokes everywhere. You know, you can touch your bottom and they will go crazy. And so if that's, and, and it's a really great lesson for a comic actor because you go, I, I don't have to go to the jar every single time because I could go to the jar every single time, but over, it's like, I, I think of it as like being little bumps. You, you quite often see, um, especially with um, comedy shows people trying to do little jokes little jokes little jokes little jokes all the way through but all of those things slow the show down because ultimately the show is about movement and it's about action and it's about getting yourself in trouble the characters doing making bad choices on the hoof these are all really smart people they've written they've written so cleverly and brilliant so even the idiots are really smart so you're trying to get yourself in trouble as a, as a human being, making poor decisions, Polonius, he makes poor decisions on the hoof, not because he's an idiot, because he's pushed, he's, he's pressed really hard. And so if you try and get a joke out of everything, mm, 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 your momentum slows, and I think the show is knackered. Now, someone might look from the outside and go, well, hang on a second, you're trying to get jokes out of everything. And I, I'd like to think I don't try and do that too much, maybe, but, so I think that if you can sow into these people a sort of, I don't know, an inherent hypocrisy, that's great. That's really powerful because then you don't have to literally put a, 
you know, pull flowers out of your bottom or trip over banana skins, but because the hypocrisy is sort of is 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 is, is sewn into the fabric of the show. And then the comedy becomes a much richer, uh, much more um, uh, uh, universal comedy, rather than just, as I say in the Globe, you know, you can come in and walk into one of the pillars and people will just think it's the best thing ever. Now that's not because they're not a smart audience, far from it, but there's something so immediate and so sort of vital about that crowd that if you're not careful, they can just start vibrating a bit too much. And I think that's a dangerous place. So to answer your question, I think I, I probably try, well, maybe I'm not answering the question. Now I'm thinking about it. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, comedy, but also if you can, if you can sow into it a, 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 an honesty, a truth, I think that's the, that's the real smart thing to do, if you see what I mean. Yeah, thank you. That's, re that's really interesting because um, um, I like the idea of sowing in a, an honesty, which is also looking for the hypocrisy of a character. That's a nice kind of paradox, I think. Um, yeah, totally. Well, what I love, I mean, Polonius is the very... I, what I loved about him is that he, you know, every, everyone who quotes Polonius, who, who don't know, who doesn't know the play very well, you know, neither a borrower nor a be or whatever, all, all that stuff. Everyone in the play talks of him as this idiot or, or, you know, this kind of, but he's, he's the right hand man of the most powerful man in the play. Who, who, you know, is sort of good at his job and has done bad things. So you go, would the president of America, okay, the president of America at the moment is a bad example, but if the idea of president, would the, would the right-hand man, would the chief of staff be an idiot? Almost certainly not. So what's going on there? So I, I just got, got my head around the idea that at some point this man had been a seriously bad, like bad kind of guy, good at making tough, difficult decisions, and had gradually just become... At the time we were doing it, um, Brexit was happening and David Davis at the time was the sort of figurehead for the left mocking him. You know, he was mocking him because he was going into sort of negotiations without his text. He, he, you know, all the French, you know, all the, um, the European Union people had these kind of files everywhere and Davis Davis was just sat there. And I was thinking, wow. So, so in my head, he was a bit like that, that a powerful man who suddenly, for some reason, because of bravado or because of his... Um, you know, not wanting to be seen to be weak, ended up looking more weak, if you see what I mean. So you've got this guy, Polonius, who all the older characters obviously value and trust and who all the younger characters think is an idiot. And so somewhere in between those two things is, is, is the truth mm. or, or the truth of sorts, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And I also love the idea of kind of self-editing, both in the rehearsal room, thinking, should I say this? And then yeah. also on the Globe stage, thinking, do I want all of the jokes at my disposal right now? It's kind of nice yeah. thing to think. Yeah, um, yeah. There. And I, I was lucky enough to see you as um, Juliet's dad in Romeo and Juliet. And um, that was, it was part of the power of that, I think, was having seen you in a, in a repertory context where you had been playing some fearsomely hilarious clowns. And yeah. then you were, t you were absolutely terrifying in that role. Um, and you, you so absolutely expose the hypocrisy of that character and the danger of that character. And my central memory of you was after delivering the, the big rant that that character has at his daughter was the way you walked off. You turned your back on her and on the audience. Um, and uh, it was that moment of 
stopping speaking actually which was most powerful i think was kind of yeah i love that so much that part i Mm. just loved it and also we we were so lucky because as part of the rep we were we started rehearsing romeo having been together for a year as a group Mm. of actors and so i knew that i could look at uh mariah gale mini and i knew i could absolutely give her the biggest load of trouble ever as a parent to a daughter you know because i've been a son and I am a father. And so I absolutely know, you know, that thing where you're, well, I don't know whether your parents ever said that, you know, you have no idea what we've done for you. No idea at all. And, and how dare you say no to me now when I've been through all this shit for you? Pardon my language. And so that was in the bottom of my, in the back of my mind all the time was how my parents had been when I had, when I had said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go here. I don't want to. And just the, how angry they were. And how desperate, because, you know, I don't know, they, you know, um, I don't know, because they'd made sacrifices and those sacrifices had meant a kind of desperation. And so having played all these, uh, having had a year of playing, you know, Touchstone and Antiphilus, you know, basically being so, being, having license to be stupid, um, uh, suddenly having this guy who just couldn't understand when people, didn't want to play it by his rules. I just thought it was the most fantastic. But because I I knew I could look at Minnie and I could throw water in her face, or I could grab her by the metaphorically grab her by the hair and you know just absolutely give her the biggest hard time ever. Yeah, that was that was the best. I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we might move on to thinking about um, writing because you were talking about um, uh, a comedy about Palestine and. Yes. asking who is okay to play what and I guess we've just been talking about the different ways in which you get to play different different kinds of um roles do you want to tell us about that second project first yeah basically the, okay the birth of that was that I'm uh because of my heritage I'm I'm quite I'm, I'm quite um ethnically uh, it's it's difficult to say where I'm from, and essentially, as an actor, what that means is I have over the years I've played Iranians, I've played Jews, I've played, you know, um, uh, Spaniards, I've played a bunch of people, only a few of which is um, where I really am from or the heritage that I really have, mm-hmm. and I just became interested in that as an idea. I get emails from my agent who says, you know, these are the words, and you're going up for his part, and quite often. Less so these days, there'll be a bit in the email that would just say, authentic Iraqi accents, please. And you go, oh, God, that's a bit troublesome. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know where I stand with that. And, you know, and, and again, going using the Fiddler on the Roof um, model, is it better, right? You've got tickets to see Fiddler on the Roof, okay? Would you rather go and see the version where they're all Jewish but nobody can sing or the version where they can all sing beautifully, but there's not a Jew on stage. And, and for me, that's, it's the whole thing is wrapped up in that idea. Mm. Now, I, I'm aware that I'm, I'm verging on offensive for a lot of people with this material. And frankly, that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of, is that why, it's, why is it okay? You know, there, 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 there's a line in the sand that's really sort of wavy and difficult. So on the one hand, we will reward Eddie Redmayne or Daniel Day-Lewis for incredibly sensitive portrayals of disability, but, um, but dot, dot, dot is the easiest way of ending that sentence. And 
um, that's where I am with it at the moment. And as I say, I, it, it, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult stuff. Mm. And, and most of the time when I explain to people what it is that I'm up to with it is I get looks of, please don't. <laughs> And I might not. It's not even like I've tried to go, ha, I know a good thing. This will annoy people. Um, I'm just looking for the cracks in things. Mm. So so in, in the Palestine thing, I, I, I wanted to find a way of talking about it that wasn't angry because there's so much anger and pain. And, um, and so I tried to find an analogy for it that felt ridiculous. So my analogy in the in, in the um, in, in the Palestinian movie is that the Palestinians realise that the reason that the, the West always sides with the Israelis is because the Jews have a better comic heritage, and when the people think of Jews, they think of the Marx Brothers or Seinfeld or or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Palestinians think, well, we don't have the same kind of comic heritage, so the only way of getting the world um, to to side with us as a as a you know, as a nation is to get funnier. And so they, they go, they, 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 they try and become this bunch of clan, this, this very, this group. So, so it's, it, and it's not that, it's not that I'm trying, I'm just trying to find a weird angle. It's like looking at things from a different perspective. And as ter in terms of Tootsie with, in a wheelchair, it's just, as an actor, this is Richard, as an actor who is asked all the time to play things that he isn't, um, I, I, there's, a, there's an area of it that I just don't quite know how I feel about it or what I'm supposed to do with it or say about it. So it's thinking about when and where um, outrage is provoked by casting decisions. Yeah, and, and also why... Because, there are, you know, th th there are just some areas of it, and, and I'm not saying I have an answer at all. That's the point. I don't have an answer. Mm. I'm just... A bit like um, I'm just trying to 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 draw a curtain on something, to to expose it to debate or to um, uh, to, and I don't think I'm like. Th th there are some. I'm just trying to think of an example. There's plenty of things that you see that are. Um, I, I I'm I'm not interested in upsetting people at all. Not at all. Essentially, I'm a clown. I am a clown. I completely and utterly buy into that description of me. I'm a clown. And so I think as I was saying to you just before we, we, we switched on is that what's great about being a clown is that you don't ask for the reasons behind things. Mm. You don't ask, why does my character do this? Because you're always going, there's a gag in here. Yeah. Right. I walk, there, there, there's a street in, I, I live near Banbury. And there's a street in Banbury that has a, a, a lamppost about every five yards. And I literally will walk into each one, one after the other, after the other, only because it amuses me. And I do that every single time I'm there because it really amuses me. And my children, who are now grown-ups, absolutely hate going down that street because they know I'll just... It's not that I'm trying to amuse them. I'm trying to just amuse myself. And so I, I don't ask why the banana skin is on the floor. I don't ask why am I putting the dynamite down my trousers. You know, if, if Wiley Coyote really thought for two minutes about drawing a massive fake tunnel on the side of a rock <laughs> or something, you, he would go, I don't think this is going to work. But nobody, nobody wants that. 
they only want Wiley e. Coyote to run off the cliff and they want him to look down and they want him then to realize that he's made a mistake. So really, whether it's the Palestinian thing or uh, Tootsie in a wheelchair, I'm, I'm just trying to run off the cliff. That's all I'm trying to do. And if I can run off the cliff with enough authenticity and enough belief in myself, I won't fall just at the beginning. I'll only fall 20 yards out. Do you see what I mean? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get as far away from the cliff before looking down and I will fall. There's no, absolutely no doubt in my mind I'll fall, but hopefully the fall is part of the, the beauty of it. If you see what I mean. And is that falling as a writer? Or as performer in the thing you're writing? I don't know. That's a good <laughs> question. I honestly don't know. I think, I think, well, to take the Palestinians as a, for instance, it ha at the moment it has a really awful ending. It ends essentially with everybody in a bad place because I look at it and I can't see have, having, because I think I've it's maybe two or three years work now on that film, the, the writing of it. And I just knew and, and still know until something decent happens in that region, there is no happy ending. And, and the reason comedy is so beautiful for me is that it promises happy endings. It promises marriages and uh, uh, and the dance and everyone holding hands at the end. And if I can promise that enough during, during the, the story and then deliver something else, I think that's the unexpected but inevitable consequence of a comedy about Palestine is that you promise resolution of happiness and decency and everyone getting what they deserve and nobody will get what they deserve because it's such a painfully awful uh, area. So that's all I'm trying to do. Because I don't know the answer, essentially. I don't know the answer. I don't know how. It's a subject that I can't work out where the, where the wavy line is. Because, um, so yeah, I, I don't honestly know at the moment. Hmm. It's, it's a very live issue. We had um, Mark Elliott on a bit lit um, in Film 83 talking about um, his time in EastEnders and being challenged yeah. by members of the public asking him if he was um, Asian or Muslim enough to play that role and yeah. thinking about how um well the question he asked is who who can i play who can i yeah. play um yeah. and in a way i think you're asking this the same question and we're, we're going through a, an incredibly important moment in a number of industries about the politics of representation and um getting making the the white male able-bodied body which has dominated the stage be um less central and less kind of you know assumed as the person who will play every role um yeah. but at the same time that has implications and repercussions for performers of all of all kinds and for stories Definitely. of all kinds there's a really brilliant um i'm going to mispronounce his name uh but there's a, a french philosopher of the 60s called alan finkelkraut i think that's mm. how you pronounce his name and he talks about he, he his desire was to no longer be an adjective he, as a Jew, he wanted to be a noun, not an adjective. Mm. And so I think for a lot of, um, because Jewish man, uh, rather than just man, uh, you know, so, so the, the Jew part or the black part or the disabled part or the gay part becomes this extra bit mm. that um, I, I think is, if you're in any kind of minority, th 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 there's this odd sort of relationship with 
because on the one hand, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of my Jewish heritage, but being Jewish is so complicated because as a sort of minority, it, it's, it's so many weird things like powerful, but no power, mm. you know, the, the sort of, that sort of um, stereotypical, the Jews control everything um, or, or whatever it is, you know, and it's, so it's just it's such a complicated area. And as I say, because I'm, you can't really tell on this, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I, people thought I was a little Indian boy because I was so brown. And so I spent the, the first half of my life um, feeling very, very different from everyone because I grew up in a very white uh, neighborhood. And even my brother who wasn't, my brother was blonde and blue eyed, strangely, mm. and I was really dark. I've mean, obviously got some Sephardic, um, uh, you know, um, Southern European Jew going on in me. My, bro my own brother used to call me chocolate boy. That was, that was my, I know, isn't that terrible? My brother, that was his nickname for me was Chocolate Boy. And so, um, so yeah, as a Jew, I, I am as likely to be asked to play all sorts of characters that I have no actual relationship with. And so yeah. I'm just, yeah. Uh, and, and what's interesting on stage is that a lot of those things we are much, already much more progressive about. It's not unusual to see you know, I was just in a show at the Globe where you had a family that had a black person, a white person, you know, and, and no one gives two stuffs about it. Mm. Nobody. I honestly hope television is heading in the same way. Mm. I think it's harder for people because I think a lot of people who watch television are not as culturally um, uh, 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 experienced, you know. Th they, they just want things to look like the thing. Mm. Whereas in the theatre, you know, it's all metaphor. Everything is metaphor. That's the great thing about it in the mm. theatre. Um, if I put a hat on and say it's the crown, you go, fine. You know, I say I'm the king, you say, okay. Whereas in, in the t on television, that's a harder thing, thing to sell to people, I think, because it's, um, it's, it's supposed to be real most of the time. People want real, you know, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. I wonder too if it's also just that those two performance cultures have just changed at a different speed because in some ways you could say similar things about theatre not that long ago people would want to see things which are which are real no that's true that is true I, I, I guess it's moving quite quickly thankfully I mean um even in the last five years it thing things seems to have, have moved along uh, quite quite well yeah yeah Richard we should move towards um wrapping up now but thank you very much I've really enjoyed thinking about moving between actor uh, and writing as, as two different identities, about working with the preordained playtext and then devised work on the other hand and how those two things might fit across each other. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing about comedy as a kind of position to inhabit, clowning as a position to inhabit, and then hearing about your move towards um, writing and thinking about um, political and social forms of identity where they sit in your profession and internationally in the case yeah. of Palestine, um, you're juggling an awful lot of really important issues there. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Well, only, only that I, I, uh, the more I think about it, the more I, I, I really love the idea that the comedians don't ask why the character is doing something. Mm. And I think that's a really crucial lesson for all actors actually. Phelan McDermott, who's a, a brilliant director, who he he um, he, he uh, uh, has a company called Improbable, and does lots of opera these days as well as theatre. He used to say there was a brilliant response he had to actors, which was an actor would say, "Why is my character doing that? My character wouldn't do that," and he would say, "Yeah, that's why it's interesting." 
That's why it's interesting. If the ghost had never appeared to Hamlet, he wouldn't have that problem. He just wouldn't. So he's, he's having to act out of character. He's being forced to do it. So it's so, so you know, in, in polite theatre, you know, serious theatre, people ask all the time, well, why am, I, why am I doing that bit? Comedians never, well, in my experience, comedians tend not to ask that. And I think it's such a great lesson mm. that, that, that you don't, you, you, slipping on a banana skin is literally putting yourself in, a, in an uncomfortable position. Mm. So it should be uncomfortable. That's where the juice is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of that's where the is. Um, I'm thinking again about an early, early film we made of Justin Shaw, which was about um, was about Shakespeare and racism, and uh, he was talking about how the question of why fits really deeply into the way people are, um, think about uh, black and white characters in Shakespeare and the kind of whyness, kind of this need for Freudian explanatory origins all the time for particular kinds of characters really drives the way we think about, about race in Shakespeare. Um, but also acting has become completely dominated by that question in the last 150 years. And it's really exciting to think about forms of acting which don't really care about that notion of an originating reason to do something. Yeah, totally, totally. Because, because you know, that, I mean, I guess, well, yeah, you know, you've just summed it up brilliantly. Totally, yeah. Um, Cats, thank you very much for your time. It's been really fascinating talking to you and hope to see you soon. Great. Thank you. Cheers.